So Travis graciously read the very long, difficult Habakkuk passage and let his wife have the nice New Testament passage. That's a good man. I've always heard, uh, heard someone once say, when you come to those weird, difficult words in the Bible, and you don't know how to say them, because I don't know how to say that one either, um, you just say it loud and with confidence. And nobody will know the difference. So, um, Welcome. Uh, we are going to look at Habakkuk 2 today and next week. So do not fear. Um, it is a long passage and uh, we're going to look at some pieces of it today and uh, focus on the woes next week. And I want to remind you, as we're doing this little short study through Habakkuk, that I'm, I'm not trying to do an in-depth, detailed uh, Bible study on it. I would invite you to do that on your own. But we are looking at this uh, short little book through the lens of trying to understand what does it look like to pray real-life prayers. And Habakkuk is a prayer um, that he prayed in the midst of some very difficult days. And so we're just trying to glean a, a few reflections from Habakkuk and his praying um, so that it would help inform our prayers. So that's where we're going. If There will be many questions left unanswered in this book. And uh, I invite you to uh, dig in for those yourself. But let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege it is that, that we can sit with it in our hands, uh, that we can read it out loud in our own language, that you have graciously uh, preserved it for us uh, for all these years later, for us as your people to sit and uh, read it together and study it together and um, bask in the glory of it together. We ask that by the power of your spirit, um, you would use your word to encourage us, um, to strengthen us, to be the people you've called us to be in the places you've put us this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I mentioned that uh, when I first preached this series of messages on Habakkuk, uh, Almost 21 years ago, um, I didn't know that as I was trying to preach on what it's like to pray when life is hard, I didn't know until I was about to preach on chapter 3, I'd already gotten through chapters 1 and 2, uh, I didn't know what God had in store for our family um, before we had our three kids. And I told you the story about Christine was in a kitchen fire, um, a kitchen accident, a grease fire, uh, where she was burned on 38% of her body, uh, mostly arms and legs. Um, and uh, I told you that story last week, but I want to tell you a, a little more about it today to help set the context for, for why I think it's important for us to think about honest prayers. Um, as Christine was being, we were living in Pensacola, Florida, 
in Mobile, Alabama is about an hour's drive away, and they happen to have uh, one of the top-rated burn units uh, in the country. And uh, at that time, some of the best burn surgeons um, in the world, we were told. And so we were thankful for that. But as she was being airlifted from Pensacola to Mobile um, just within a couple of hours after the accident, um, uh, our associate pastor at our church drove me to Mobile. And that, uh, that car ride, that one-hour-long car ride, was awful. I, I mean, I sat stunned, and now I look back and I think, I feel bad for my associate pastor. <laughs> what was he going to say? Uh, and so we, we sat in silence, um, and I, I was numb. I was trying to figure out what was all this going to mean, um, what what would happen from here? Um, if she survives this, then clearly uh, life would not be the same for her, for either of us. So as we arrived in Mobile, um, they did not have room in the burn unit for her at that time. So really, I mean, they just kind of parked her in one of those ER curtained rooms, and there she was. Uh, lying there in, in pain, uh, when I finally got back there to see her, um, her, her face was just bright red from uh, the fire when she, apparently when she, she tried to take this burning pot of grease and, and get it out of the house because our next door neighbor was an elderly lady. We just thought, she just thought this, this house is going to burn down our neighbors are just right 10 feet away. It's going to get her house. i got to get this out. And as she was walking out onto our sunroom porch, the, the grease kind of sloshed and caught fresh oxygen. It flared up in her face. And then that's when she dropped it and, and went everywhere. Um, when that happened, it, she had first-degree burns all over her face. And so as I saw her face bright red, hair singed back, um, and I noticed she tried to say something to me, but she couldn't quite get it out, and, and right as that was happening, and I was trying to figure out why she couldn't talk, a nurse came in the room uh, to check on her, and I said, she's, she's trying to talk, but it doesn't sound like she can say anything, it sounds like she's having a hard time breathing, boom, he clicked into high gear at that point called someone in because what he said was uh, apparently what happens often is that someone, and in her case, this is what happened, they suck in the, the heat or the flame of the fire and it burns the throat. And so her throat was swelling shut and that's why she couldn't talk and she was having a hard time breathing. And so immediately they got her, they intubated her, got that breathing tube down and he told me later, he said, 10 more minutes, and her throat would have been closed. We wouldn't have been able to intubate her. And I just was amazed that um, he just so happened to come back and check on her. I just so happened to notice that she couldn't speak. Um, they finally got her 
upstairs to the burn unit in the wee hours of the morning, uh, one, two in the morning, finally got her into a room or into a, a bed. And uh, I spent the night in this waiting room, which was just a hospital room that they had stripped out and threw some nice, lovely vinyl couches in there for the comfort of their guests. Um, and I was laying there on a cold vinyl couch, three in the morning, trying to sleep. And uh, there was one other person. This lady was on the other couch across the room, snoring so loud that I can hear it now. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, she can sleep. I have to tell you, I've never felt so lonely in my life. Never felt so alone in my life. And so through tears, I'm just praying those honest prayers that we talked about last week. Um, and all that I, I had preached up to that point about Habakkuk um, was coming to mind um, that uh, honest prayers deal with God as I am and as He is. And, and that's what we talked about last week, and I think that's what Habakkuk was doing in chapter 1. Um, he was bringing his heart to God raw as it was. And then God was willing to reveal his heart to him. And it's interesting, I, I learned later that, that C.S. Lewis said some very similar things about prayer. Um, the last book that he wrote to be published was a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And he was writing letters to a, a fictional friend about prayer. And so listen to what he said. Um, he, he described prayer as kind of an unveiling, both of us and God. He said, the prayer preceding all prayers is, may it be the real I who speaks, may it be the real you that I speak to. And so he says in, in honest prayer, the real me is unveiled. Lewis explained, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. You ever feel that way? When you pray, I, I need to present myself to God as I ought to be. No. <laughs> Real life praying is presenting to God what is in you, not what ought to be in you. It's no use to try to impress God with words that sound good. Come to him as you are. As Lewis observed um, in that book, he said, only God himself can let the bucket down to the depths of us. So in prayer, let God let the bucket down to the depth of you and bring up whatever it is. But something else happens in honest prayer. Not only are we unveiled, but God unveils himself. We, we get a sense of who the real God is, and that's what happened to Habakkuk in this prayer. Um, Lewis said that in prayer, God is constantly working to shatter our false images of him. He says, every idea we form of God, he must in mercy shatter. The most blessed result of prayer would be to rise from prayer thinking, 
but I never knew before. I, I never dreamed. So that's what we're after in honest prayer. And isn't that what Job experienced in his long, long 30-some chapter conversation with God or complaint to God? Um, after 30-some chapters of Job unveiling his heart to God, God spent two chapters unveiling his heart to Job as he spoke to Job out of a tornado. And when he was through, when God was through asking Job questions like, where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I threw the stars in the heavens? Where were you, Job? After God revealed who he was to Job, this is what Job said in response. He said, I had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Habakkuk is, essentially says the same thing at the end of his conversation with God. In chapter 3, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver. You say, I, I thought I knew you before we started this conversation, God. But now, you've said some things that give me a better understanding of the one with whom I have to deal. And I tremble. And so that's what's going to happen in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, we're going to uncover the heart of the one who prays by faith. And in chapter 3, we're going to unveil more of the heart of the God to whom we pray. Um, so I want us to pick up where we left off at the end of Habakkuk chapter 1. Now let me kind of review real quickly what, what we've seen so far. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk complained. And I'm summarizing. He says, God, your righteous king Josiah is dead and gone, and so is the revival of righteousness that you brought to your people through him. How long, O Lord? Wickedness is winning. Why aren't you doing something about this? And then God responds in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. He says, I am about to do something about this, Habakkuk, and you won't believe it when I reveal it. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge my people as I promised Josiah that I would. And then Habakkuk complains again in verses 12 through 17. He says, wait, you're going to use the Babylonians, a people more wicked than we, to punish us? Well, then what are you going to do to punish the Babylonians? Sounds like your children when they argue with you, right? You know? They, they should all be attorneys. Um, Habakkuk says, you're just going to let evil go unpunished? You're too pure for that, God. How long will you let this go on? And then he says, I'm going to wait right here for your response. So now here in chapter 2, Habakkuk wisely keeps silent. Notice he doesn't say a word in chapter 2. Uh, and listens as God responds again to Habakkuk's complaint. And God says this, essentially, I'm summarizing again. God says, I will judge the Babylonians for the same idolatry and rebellion for which I will judge my own people. We're going to look at that more next week. But until that time comes, you have two choices, Habakkuk. You can live like the wicked and trust yourself, or you can live like the righteous and trust me. Where do I see that? 
In verse 4, God said, Behold, his soul, he's talking about the Babylonian, the wicked, his soul is puffed up, is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So you can live like the wicked and trust yourself, or you can live righteous and trust me. Those who want to be righteous will live by faith in me and my faithfulness, God says. My faithfulness to be a just judge and a righteous redeemer. One commentator summed up chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, this way. And I thought this was helpful. Um, I typically wouldn't read to you from a commentary, but this is very helpful. God's answer in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, does not resolve all the painful questions, but it does teach God's people the way of covenant life in the here and now. That way is to persevere in hope waiting with confidence for the fulfillment of the Lord's unfailing promise. Although God's ways may be inscrutable, his purposes are consistent. They culminate in real life for the faithful, but woe and death for the self-sufficient and arrogant. So until the time comes when God finally puts away all my pain, I have two choices. There are two ways I can live. I can live by faith in myself, or I can live by faith in my faithful God. So I want us this morning to start this week and next. We're going to ask the question, what does a heart of faith look like while it waits on God to answer and act? What does a heart of faith look like while we wait on God to answer and act? And this week, we're just going to focus on this one thing. The heart of faith is expectant as it as it rests in God's sovereignty. The heart of faith is expectant as it rests in God's sovereignty. In verse verse 3 of chapter 2, God says, wait for the vision. It will surely come. It will not delay. And then at the end of chapter 2, so we're bookending chapter 2, at the beginning he says, wait for the vision. It will surely come. It will not delay. And at the end... He says in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You have to remember that we're we're talking about a man who loves God. Habakkuk does live by faith. And he wasn't using his complaint against God to push God away, as we talked about last week, but rather as an opportunity to wrestle with God and trust him more deeply to understand at least a little bit more about this God who's confusing him at the moment. He didn't complain and then run away. He stood and waited. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post. It's an observation station. And I will station myself on the tower, the watchtower or the fortress. And I will look out to see what he will say to me. So like a guard waiting on the watchtower for the first signs of an approaching army, he was on the lookout for a response to his complaint. And so this isn't an attitude of hostility that dismisses God, but it's an, it's an attitude of hope that depends on God as waiting. God will have an answer for this, I know. And I'm, I'm looking. It's, it's expectant hope. 
And what is God's response to the one who struggles to understand him? He offers a vision to Habakkuk and to us. He says, wait for that vision. It will come. It will surely not delay. Um, real Real life can blind you. All the brokenness that we see in the world and all the brokenness that we see in our own hearts easily keeps our eyes focused on the wrong thing. Easily we lose sight of God. Now, um, I don't know about you, but when I'm mowing the lawn uh, and I've got my, if I'm being very proper, I have my safety goggles on, but typically I have my shades, my sunglasses on, um, I'm mowing the lawn, and after a while, all the sweat and dust and grass and everything, after a while, I just I can't see very well. So I have to take them off, take my grimy sweatshirt, uh, T-shirt, and wipe the sweat out of my shades, put them back on. Oh, there's the yard, and I can keep going. A cheesy little illustration, but the point is that real life, the grime and the grit and the sweat and the tears blur our vision. And so sometimes we need to stop. God needs to stop us and say, let me, let me wipe the sweat out of your shades so you can see clearly. Um, so that you can walk by faith and not by sight. So two things. Two things before we come to the table together. Uh, Two things that the heart of faith remembers so that it can see. First of all, the heart of faith remembers that God has a plan. Um, That's verse 2 of chapter 2. There is a vision, God says. I do have a plan. Write it down, and it is awaiting its appointed time. I do have a plan to deal with these things that uh, disturb you, Habakkuk. I do have a plan. God says to his prophet, listen, I've always had a plan. You complain about injustice and evil running rampant in the land. You complain that the ones I've appointed to judge my people are even more wicked than they, but wait till you see what I've got planned for them. And so then in chapter 2, God unfolds how he plans to punish the wicked, how he plans to make things right. And so this vision in chapter 2, verses 5 through 19 he pronounces five woes upon the kingdom of Babylon. A woe is an exclamation of distress in the face of coming disaster. God is going to bring justice in a way that will make these people shout in distress and dismay over the judgment they receive. And Habakkuk needed to be reminded that God's plans, though they may be delayed, would not be deterred. Had he forgotten that God punished the northern kingdom of Israel by having Assyria overthrow them? Had Habakkuk forgotten what God had just recently done to Assyria, the ones who had, he had used to overthrow Israel? See, God had done this before. He judged his people by using a people more wicked, quote-unquote, than they, with Assyria. Listen to uh, Isaiah's prophecy of Assyria's destruction written a hundred years before this time in Isaiah 14. 
uh, written a hundred years before the destruction. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. There's a theme here. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? So Isaiah's 100-year-old prophecy of the destruction of Assyria came to pass in Habakkuk's lifetime, less than 10 years before Habakkuk had this vision. Just as God had a plan for punishing the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria, God had a plan for punishing the southern kingdom of Judah, Habakkuk's people, and it was just around the corner. Within a few decades after Habakkuk's prophecy was delivered, the Babylonians did come. They took Judah into captivity and destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. This is is when Daniel and his friends were carted off to Babylon. Just a few decades after Habakkuk received this vision, God judged his people by using the Babylonians. But, as God promised, about 50 years after Babylon destroyed his temple, the Babylonians were overthrown by Persia. Next. They were history. So Habakkuk needed to be reminded that God's answers to his cries were just around the corner. And we need to be reminded that as well. But there was another plan that was just around the corner that Habakkuk didn't know about. It wasn't as clear. Um, But Habakkuk's own prophecy in chapter 2, verse 4 but the righteous will live by his faith, would become a famous slogan that the apostles used for God's ultimate plan for dealing with the sin of his people. It's the plan we call the gospel. But the righteous shall live by faith. That little phrase was used three times in the New Testament. Two by Paul and one by the author of Hebrews. And Amber read it this morning. It was used by Luther and others as a, the cry of the Reformation 500 years ago. Um, in Romans 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Then again in Galatians 3, Paul said, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then, as Amber just read in Hebrews 10, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This was the hope that was just around the corner for Habakkuk. 
that one day God himself would come and take on himself the sins of all those who put their faith in him. And that hope became the good news that Paul preached to suffering Christians in Romans 8, 31 and 32. You're going to hear this from me again and again and again. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul used the hope of the gospel that the righteous would live by faith in Jesus. He used that announcement, that hope that was just around the corner to help suffering Christians persevere. It's the hope that if God has loved you enough to solve your biggest problem by meeting your greatest need, your greatest problem was being rejected by God, your greatest need is to be reconciled to him. If God loved you enough to solve your greatest problem and meet your greatest need, then you can be assured that he loves you now as you face every other problem and every other need you have. And so the heart of faith prays honest prayers, but it prays them while holding on to that hope. God, you said you loved me. You proved it on the cross. And the empty cross and the empty tomb prove that you love me. I need you to show me now that you love me. So we live by faith by remembering he has a plan, but secondly, that we remember that God is in his place. The Lord is in his holy temple. So where is God when bad things happen? That's what Habakkuk wanted to know. And God was happy to answer him. The Lord is in his holy temple. What the righteous do, the righteous who live by faith do, while everything is falling apart, is they remember God is in his place. God is ruling and reigning for the glory of his name and the good of his people. No matter what we see happening on the stage, God is at work behind the scenes. Now, stop right there. All right, Jimmy, so you've, you've said two things that you know, are kind of, duh, pretty obvious. What's happening when, God is, when bad things are happening? God has a plan and God is in his place. Thanks. Those platitudes are going to get me through this next week. They can be used as platitudes, as little Bible band-aids, you know. Take two of these and call me in the morning. That is not how I intend it, and that is not how God intends to use the truth of his scripture. It is true he has a plan. It is true that he's in his place. And it is true that those are for you, no matter what you're facing. So don't hear these as platitudes. Hear these as life. God is in his place. God is in his place. And what should be our response? God says in, in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple 
let all the earth be silent before him. That word silent, the Hebrew word for silent there, literally means hush. Hush. When my babies were little and they'd wake up in the night and they had a bad dream and call out to us, we'd go in there and you just grab them up in your arms and you go, hush, hush, hush. Daddy's here. Daddy's got you. It's okay. Hush. He's got you. You can rest in his embrace. And he says, hush, hush. I am in charge. I am here. I am in my holy temple. Be silent before me. Hush. And on this side of the empty cross and the empty tomb, how do we know that he's there and that he's for us? Because he sent his son. And instead of hush, the father was silent for three hours on the cross. Jesus experienced the Father's harsh so that you could experience his hush. And what did he do after he rose from the dead? Hebrews 1.3 says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus when everything around me and in me is falling apart? He has already solved your greatest problem and met your greatest need by purifying for your sins. And now he sits at the right hand of his father, ruling and reigning over every sin, sinner, Satan, and suffering you experience. That's where his place is for you. The heart of faith holds on to that vision that God is in his place. And you may say to me, well, Jimmy, I can't hold on any longer. I can't. I can't hold on to the vi vision of Jesus on his throne. I'm too tired. I don't have any strength. My grip is gone. Then hear what Paul says to God's people. And about God's people in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And get this, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news. You're already seated. If you're in Christ, you're already seated in the heavenly places with him, Paul says. If you're in Christ Jesus, seated with him in the heavenly places, then he's got a hold on you when you can't hold on to him.
Whatever, I don't know how that works. It's mysterious. But he says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so just turn and grab him and hush. I love this by uh, Ole Hallisby who wrote a famous book on prayer almost a century ago. He said, the essence of faith is to come to Christ. We have faith enough when we in our helplessness turn to Jesus. You say, Jimmy, I don't have enough faith to remember God's plan and remember God is in his place. I don't have enough faith. All you have, all, the only amount of faith you have to have is enough just to turn to him. Just turn to him. And that's why I love communion. Because when I can't see that God loves me in the midst of hard times and that he has a plan and that he's in his place, this table reminds me again. It is a clear picture. It is a taste and feel and touch reminder that he's a plan and he's in his place. Wait, rest, hush. Father, we need you to do that in us. We need, you to, we need you to do that in us. We believe. Help our unbelief. And would you use this, this morning, this table, use this bread and this juice of the grape to remind us that you have already enacted the plan that took care of our greatest need and biggest problem. In Christ, we are no longer under the judgment of God, but now our sons and daughters who, can, who are seated with him in the heavenly places who can turn and lean on him and hear the Father say, it's okay, I've got you. Hush. And so would you uh, allow this meal that we enjoy together this morning um, to be for your people that reminder. Jesus said, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. God, help us to remember. Help us to receive this as the embrace of our Father who loves us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.